Welcome to episode 338 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a great conversation with regular contributor, attorney Michael Harris, the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. We talked to Michael at his Denver, Colorado office about the recent CITES ban on the import of live African elephants to zoos, the UK's position poised to ban all exotic hunting trophies, charismatic species, the Wizard of Oz, hunting as a conservation tool, gun ownership and doing the right thing, deer hunting, and several other related topics. As I said, a great conversation with Michael Harris today on the program. We have an EWSA titled Truth, and we share an article from a recent edition of the New Yorker magazine written by Ian Frazier titled Brave New World Cookout, and a poem called Sour Mash. And all of this, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 338 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
truth. There is a marching band on the street outside my window in the downtown of this quaint little haven designed back in the middle 18th century of U.S. history. Not long before and after our first civil war, the architecture was so much more beautiful. The social outlook and mores I can only imagine. Or I could read a history book to better understand, though one should question its accuracy. Dare I even use the word truth? Have you read yet Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States? An alternative set of truths. The band's drum major steadies a beat, one that fosters a rhythm moving forward with gusto, if not verve. No notions of retreat. Is that who we are in these states united? No retreat. Don't tread on me. Oh, my dear Dorothy, where is the comfort of Aunt B? I wonder if I truly understand or know the way it was that has brought us here as a social fabric we call a country. I wonder if I really know what this place, this space is right now as we live and breathe. Urge, 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 the procreant urge of the world. Mr. Walt Whitman's words from his masterwork of American culture, Song of Myself. I have paraphrased it into a recurring refrain of my soul's psyche. I would call it a mantra, though I am unsure if its root essence is healthy enough to be one. Peace, love, truth, somewhere over the rainbow. Maybe that could work, or is it too long? Can you hear the drums, tuba, and sly trombones? Feel it coming to you hear the night from the river bridge I hear the thunder I the storm in your skin on mine Tell me what's the story morning glory Whisper it to me in a grand hotel Telling me all the time I'm sorry Baby don't I know it it ain't hard to tell you Well I know Yeah I know You get so low Get high before you go. Come say hello. Cause I'm never gonna find a way to say goodbye. goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Our tears. Our tears. Lightning evening in the holy highlands Down in the hall up against the wall I know you're struggling what to call it Why you gotta call it anything at all now Is it a dream or some soft poison As looking away till you bled the blues Yeah, is it a dream or some 
Michael Harris, is that you? Yes, it is. How are you, E.W.? Oh, very, very nice. Very nice uh, to hear your voice. I'm doing great. It's good to have you on the program again, a regular contributor. Attorney Michael Harris, director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. And we're talking to him at his office in Denver, Colorado, right? That's right. That's where I am. And how's the weather out there today? It's turning fall for us. A little bit cooler, but still, still got some nice weather in store. Hope to get up to the mountains and see the aspen leaves change this weekend. Yeah, is that a big uh, sort of rite of passage in your neck of the woods? Well, it's not as pretty as it is in your neck of the woods because it's just the yellows, but it's still pretty cool. It reminds you of change, right? Yeah, and change is important and inevitable. That's right. And we're going to talk about some good changes, I guess, today, or on, we're on the cusp of some good changes in, uh, uh, with regard to some of the work that you tirelessly endeavor within, and that is uh, protecting animals. In particular, we're talking about some of the exotic animals, the animals we see in zoos, the animals that are often hunted, uh, big game hunters go after, in particular in the, on the African continent. So w what's going on in that, in that way? Well, you know, just from a broad perspective, you and I have had these chats for a couple of years now, and we're always talking about these things in terms of 
how important and and um, clearly urgent action needs to be to save some of these animals, but the hope of ever doing so always seems to be a little bit dim. And we find ourselves sitting here today, unexpectedly, really, in my mind, looking at just a real sea change in how governments are looking at these issues and are stepping up to the plate to say, wait, you know, it's not just the poachers out there, these illegal operations killing these animals. The citizens of countries like the United States and the UK and and other European countries, they're just as responsible for this um, plight for many species on Earth, whether those are African elephants or lions or, um, you know, many of the uh, many of the fish species around the world and all the other species that we're commercially exploiting. And we are seeing some real positive change in the last, just literally the last few months. And um, it's obviously really satisfying to have been part of it and to have not, you know, given up and uh, continued the fight. But it's really rewarding to see some of this happen now and, and gives us real hope that we'll be able to go beyond just, you know, the charismatic species and into really trying to take a look at how we could protect uh, other wildlife. And, um, you know, this all comes upon uh, us in a very, you know, very favorable way. And we, we love to see it. But we also have to be aware uh, we can't celebrate too much. At the same time, we're getting these really great changes going on for um, for a lot of species. Um, you know, we see reports like we did last week about how dire it is for birds, for instance, in this world, that their populations have plummeted in the last couple of decades. So there's still a lot of work to do. But let's take the time to enjoy this for sure and talk about it today. Yeah, and, and you're, you're talking the species in particular. Again, you're talking about animals like elephants and, uh, and lions and tigers i will not say and bears oh boy i did there there it was oh, bears <laughs> wizard, wizard of oz yeah <laughs> so you know some of the some of those uh as you call them charismatic species have have uh kind of been protected to a, a greater extent than than uh, you have seen uh, now, yeah. tell us more about it, the specifics. I know the UK is involved here, uh, as well as African nations. Yeah, and maybe just a real quickly, just maybe for a minute, just talk a little bit about how we got to this point. And, you know, what we have seen over the last couple of years is that the public had previously not really thought much about the treatment of wildlife by sport hunters or how animals were being taken from the wild and put into the zoos. It just wasn't something that the media ever covered. And, you know, starting with a couple horrific acts, uh, like the killing of Cecil the Lion by that dentist in Minnesota, um, the decision by the Safari Club of Dallas, which is a uh, uh, sort of a, a sport trophy hunting group to auction off a permit to kill a very rare rhino in Namibia, um, as well as our own work on, you know, trying to... Uh, tell the story of the stealing of those seven uh, elephants from Swaziland to put in U.S. zoos. Um, the public has been very, very attentive to this and interested. And the, the news media, you know, trying to always 
um, provide the stories that they think people will click on and, and look at has pretty much for the last two or three years taken every opportunity they can to cover these types of events. And, um, and that has been, I think, an extremely important point in reaching, you know, driving us to change in our laws. And then uh, I think really um, what might have been the sort of, you know, the, the final final sort of story to put this all out there and force this change was written by um, Charles Siebert, um, who took a very, very detailed look at the Swaziland elephant story and published a piece a couple months ago in the New York Times Magazine. And that piece came out just before world leaders gathered um, to discuss the plight of endangered and threatened species around the world and to consider whether new changes in the laws need to be made. And to our surprise, with really no real advance um, notice at all, because it wasn't even on the agenda, um, the parties at that conference, it's called CITES, C-I-T-E-S, um, sort of um, out of the blue proposed a ban on taking any more elephants out of Africa and putting them in zoos worldwide. When the news reached us that they were considering this, we thought it might have just been some type of fantasful wish by maybe one of the more um, animal-friendly countries at the conference. Um, and to our very surprise, within a week, it had gained substantial momentum and the European Union threw its weight behind that resolution and it passed. Now, the United States opposed it, but it was remarkable that even with the U.S. opposing it, the European Union and other countries passed it. So that, that was the first big um, the big um, change that we saw, and, and the others are followed, and we could talk about those too. I'm wondering, uh, so this, the CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, that's what it stands for, by the way, folks, um, they are based in, in Europe? Yeah, they are. They are not a UN organization. They're an independent organization. Uh, they hold their meetings um, every two years, and they uh, change the location. And, you know, they were going to hit – this year was supposed to be in Sri Lanka, but because of some security issues there, it was changed at the last minute. And i sorry, but I don't remember where they met this summer, but um, but they um, they met and we got this remarkable – this remarkable outcome. I guess I'm, I'm wondering what kind of teeth uh, does this um, uh, action or decision have? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, and and, and that's a fair question. And and some people have tried to downplay this um, resolution by pointing to the fact that they think that there will be loopholes or um, the United States won't abide by it and so forth. And uh, we don't know. It, exactly whether or not those predictions will um, end up, you know, watering this decision down or causing it to be less important than it appears. But look, I mean, we got to start with the premise that we did this. I mean, that is amazing. I mean, this is something that no conservation organization or group like mine would have conceived as a possibility a year ago. 
not even six months ago. Um, but then going to that question, I, you know, we've looked at this and it's pretty strong. Um, the only exception would be for uh, a country to plead to what is considered to be like a like a, the scientific decision body of the group. It's a panel um, that has the authority to override CITES protections in cases of extreme circumstances. And that it, body has never accepted um, requests for exceptions to CITES in the past. Is that kind of it like uh, what uh, the scientific community in Japan did with regard to whaling? That kind well, of loophole? What they did is they pulled out. They just decided to quit the you know, quit the involvement with the international organization altogether. Right, but before that they were they were still whaling a little bit, but it was just for scientific purposes they were saying, right? Or no? Am I wrong? Right. That was that was built right into the uh to the restrictions. They so they were they didn't have to go to this body to get that permission ah, okay. in the case. Um we have a we have a similar group of people here. Um, we don't hear about them too much. Who can give exceptions to our uh, Endangered Species Act, and they had been referred to in the past as the God Squad um, <laughs> because somehow they could wave the life of a, of another species. And that that group too has historically not issued a lot of exemptions uh, under the ESA. And like I said, with respect to CITES, it's it's really not uh, not something that gets done. And so we feel like by by not doing what they did with whales, right? Like building in an exception right into the language, but instead requiring application to this committee, that is by itself a huge, huge um, restriction and really cleans up the loopholes that we might be concerned about. So we'll see. And as for the United States leaving CITES, that, that seems pretty far-fetched. Um, you know, we may we may threaten to do that. We may um, boycott certain things, but CITES exists today because of the efforts of the United States in the early '80s. I mean, we created it. So CITES is is empowered by just a collaborative effort of of many nations, sort of like the UN, but with a more specific focus. Correct. Yes, that's right. It's a uh, hundred and eighty-two countries that are come together just to work on protecting other species. And they're pretty linked with the governments of their countries. You know, they get usually they get the backing of the government of their countries. Has, has that been your analysis based on your observations? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the, um, the management of it on a day-to-day -day basis is a professional scientific staff um, implementing the statutes. But these decisions that are made every two years on, uh, you know, removing restrictions or granting more restrictions for species is very political. Um, it starts with our U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, proposing changes and getting public comment and then putting an agenda together. They submit that agenda and every country has an opportunity to do the same thing. And yeah, most of the delegates are appointed delegates by political entities here in the U.S. and other countries. And how are the African nations uh, responding to this ban? Well, they're the ones threatening to pull out. I mean, they're very, very uh, upset about this, particularly um, some of the ones that um, 
are, have been well known in the past not to do a good job protecting their species anyways, like Zimbabwe, like um, um, Tanzania, um, uh, and like some of the other ones that have issued these permits uh, in large numbers for killing of giraffes, elephants, lions, rhinos in the past. And they have said that they would pull out. Of course, them pulling out doesn't really prevent, uh, you know, doesn't really undermine the rule, right? Because you can't import. It's the countries in the United States and Europe and elsewhere in the world that are importing these animals for zoos. Elephants is what we're talking about. Um, so even if they pulled out, the ban would still be in place. So it's specific to elephants. Um not so much lions or tigers or bears. Right. And That's right. Why elephants in particular? Because they're endangered more so. Well, I, you know, I think that uh, Charles Siebert's story shook the world. I really do. And I think because it was uh, elephants and zoos and a problem that could be addressed and public outcry was was extraordinary when that article came out and it was echoed around the world. And so it was something that they, I think felt that they could take action on and um, it would not be subject to a lot of backlash because of the public's support for it. Um, but that was a jumping off point. So last week we learned that the United Kingdom is posed and it, and it looks as if this will go into effect um, by the beginning of next year to be the first country uh, to ban the import of all trophy parts from elephants, lions, rhinos, giraffes, uh, any of these things that you know trophy hunters usually kill to import their skins or their bones or their heads or their bodies uh, or other parts. And so that is sort of always been um, friends of animals and other organizations goal is to get these bans in place. The United States House of Representatives has also proposed what is called the conserving ecosystems by ceasing the importation of large animal trophies act. If that sounds odd, it's all because they were trying to get the acronym Cecil. <laughs> for, the, for the lion that was killed by the dentist in Minnesota. <laughs> the Cecil Act nice. uh, has been introduced in the House and looks as if it will pass the House. Now, uh, this is probably a more difficult one to pass in the United States because of the Senate's take and the NRA's grip on the Senate. Um, but um, we know that it has shooken the uh, foundations of other countries. Apparently, there'll be an African delegation coming to the United States within the next few weeks to try to do their best to lobby against this bill going any further. So it, it, it's just remarkable that we're even talking about this. Um, and ironically, with respect to Trump, if it got on his desk, it probably would get signed. Um, he has been very, for, for whatever reason, I mean, you know, maybe there is no reason with this guy. Um, but he has been very uh, adamant that he thinks this is disgusting, killing these animals. Hmm. Um, there has been some um, belief that the Fish and Wildlife Service 
doesn't want to issue a permit right now to kill any elephants and bring their parts back into the United States because they're afraid that he'll just, you know, they don't want to draw his attention to them. So um, they haven't issued any of these permits now for more than a year. So it's very interesting. I mean, you know, there's a lot of reasons not to like that guy, but. You know, if you'd sign a bill, that would be good. You still wouldn't like him, but it would be the right thing yeah. for him to do. That's right. Still, yeah. still not like him. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking yeah. to attorney Michael Harris here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, a regular contributor and uh, the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. He's based in Denver, Colorado. Uh, so let me ask you then, if Donald Trump is not against some of these initiative, initiatives. Why did the United States not support the CITES ban for the import of live African elephants? What, what, what stopped? Was, our, was it Congress then? Well, you know, I think that the NRA and the Safari Club have a pretty firm grip on the leadership of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service right now, just like they do on the Senate. And so um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has increasingly over the last uh, decade um, been beholden to the sort of the policy desires of those those groups. And, um, you know, Zinke in particular, who would have been uh, part of the dele- uh, putting together the delegation that went over there, uh, he was adamant about, you know, um, uh, protecting the rights of of these big game trophy hunters. And so I, I think that's really where the problem lies right now. And one of the things that this Cecil act would do would fundamentally, um, uh, cabin the, uh, discretion that us fish and wildlife service would have on issuing any types of these permits. It would be an out ban on importing any elephant and lion trophies. And as for any other species, that would be subject to trophy hunting. It would really, really restrict the discretion that that agency currently has in issuing those permits. They would have to be. They would have to adhere more strictly to the requirements of the Endangered Species Act. I understand, and they, of course, do not want to do that. Uh, and just because they believe, I guess, that they're. Uh, representing the better interests and the, um, the 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 wants and the needs of of their members via you know hunting. Yeah, I mean we've talked about this uh, unholy alliance before on your show. You know, it, it was just that when you know early on in this game, and we're talking forty, fifty years ago when when there was even notions that somehow we would restrict the killing of animals in the wild, that the hunting community sort of embedded this idea and into the policymaking um, apparatus that hunting can be a conservation tool. And while I think what we're seeing here is a rapid um, destruction of that theory, that premise, um, you know, it, it, a lot of people are holding on to it because they've invested into it. Um, they've designed wildlife management models based upon that theory. And, um, you know, while it starts, while it seems like, well, that's fine, but we're talking about endangered species here, right? 
it doesn't make any sense to go shoot them or kill them. Um, they're, I think, really afraid that if they let go of that conservation model for these endangered elephants and lions, that it's going to expose the whole conservation model right. for what for what it's worth. And then we'll be talking about, you know, why are we using the gun as the main tool for conserving quote unquote conserving wildlife. It doesn't make any sense. No. Why don't we have a more natural holistic approach to it where we integrate, you know, predators and um, larger spaces and just sort of rethink what we're doing here because we're just really our only tool right now is to kill them. And that is something that these groups are vested in trying to protect. Right. Uh, and, and it is an odd sort of philosophy. It's a brutal philosophy. And um, when you look at the NRA and you look at conservationism and um, the the rights, the personhood of other living creatures, is it is it about, from the NRA's perspective, uh, is it about a big money sort of uh, uh, interest that they are, are afraid they're going to lose or that, uh, it, it, you know, an economic sort of loss to them if, if they're not able to hunt whom, whatever they want to? Or is it, and or is it all, just a, this, this ingrained entitled uh, sort of attitude about a tradition that they must keep alive? Yeah. Well, they're certainly losing members. I mean, hunting popularity just dwindles every decade when you look at the polls. Um, and if they think that they're going to somehow recover that base of people, um, I mean, I think that's that's a pipe dream. I mean, I think we're clearly on the path towards um, having only a very small minority of people who really think that um, this type of sport hunting in particular um you know, is, is, is something that's worth preserving. Um, and I think it's more the entitlement. I really do. I think it's power and entitlement. Um, I think it's the ability to, um, you know, they have, they have great strength right now and they just don't want to let that go. Um, it's really odd to think about how a group like the NRA that consists of, you know, you know what the numbers are somewhere in the 30 to 40 percent of, of americans at most and probably less than that who really you know even if they're members really think about the policies um have s so much power i mean to stop everything i mean literally you cannot get um these type of bills through the senate and they have the stranglehold on these agencies too so I think, you know, I think they feel entitled to that. And I think that it's power and, and they're not, they don't want to give it up. They, I mean, we see this with, you know, gun control for other reasons, too. I mean, very sensible stuff that vast majority of Americans, obviously, and I know your listeners are educated and know this and, you know, can't do a thing on it, right? Right. It's very frustrating. And did you say 30%? Uh, you, you threw 30% out there of the American public is in some way affiliated with the NRA. Is that, did I hear that wrong? I've seen numbers of gun ownership and, 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 and NRA membership in that range. Yeah. That's a lot. And, and, I wouldn't think it was that high to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the hunting, you know, is around the high thirties, low forties as well. And that number's fallen like just off the cliff. 
um, in the past few decades to the number of American households that hunted, that had hunted. It, it seems, though, in the long term, things are going to play out in a way that benefits your uh, philosophy and, and your pursuits as to you know how we might treat other living creatures better and how we might protect the, the, their habitats and allow them to live uh, a good life. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I mean, I, I think we're having um, a sensible conversation about it for the first time in the policy world, you know, um, and that's a big thing. And and I also think that, you know, gun ownership and NRA membership and doing the right thing are all separable, right? That there are people out there who may believe that they have the right to have a gun that don't think that trophy hunting is a good idea. In fact, I think that when it comes to just that question, I mean, my sense is is that that's a, a much smaller group of people um, than whether it's NRA membership or households that hunt. I think the people that would say, oh, yeah, but that hunting of an elephant, it, we ought to protect that. I think that's a really small number. I don't think anybody's polled anybody on something that specific. But you hear all the time just talking to quote-unquote hunters that they go, well, I want to do that kind of stuff. I mean, that's not what I want. I mean, I do think that when you're talking about this type of killing of animals, you're really talking about a very small group of really entitled people, right? Rich. They have to be rich to to go to another country, another continent, and and uh, hunt a, a, an elephant or a, a lion. You, yes, that that is for sure. I mean, this is not a, a cheap um, adventure. And so there's that aspect of it. And yeah, I mean, um, it, it's a sense of I can do it. I have more power than you. I have more money than you. And, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, most hunters don't fall into that range um, and certainly don't like the backlash of being like the stigma associated with um, what the public has, you know, come to see as a real issue in the last couple of years. Well, and you go back, I go back to one of the terms again you used earlier, and I guess it's a term of, of your profession, charismatic species. You know, we, we do tend to, to care more about uh, an elephant or a lion or, you know, a, a panda bear more than maybe, yeah, you know, a skunk or uh, some sort of rodent uh, because of how it appeals to our uh, our, our aesthetic sense, uh, and also maybe stories and mythologies that we've uh, been taught. But when you when when you go to the everyday hunter, uh, like the deer hunter, so to speak, great movie by the way. Uh, do you do you think those folks shouldn't be doing that too? Do you think that's need that needs to stop as well? I think that uh, we need to stop relying on hunting. Um, as our conservation focus, and that includes deer, elk. I think that it has allowed us to two things. It allows us to no longer talk productively about um, restoring our ecosystems properly. Um, why invest in restoring our ecosystem when we could just have people go out there and do population checks by hunting them. The second thing I think it does uh, is it falsely uh, gives people a sense that, um, you know, ca carnivores and other animals uh, 
are somehow going to be, um, you know, in the, in the, their way of life, I guess, you know, I mean, the two primary groups that, that, you know, falsely state that, um, carnivores are a problem are the, the ranchers, uh, which, you know, people might think makes more sense and hunters and people say, why do hunters think that, that these animals are, um, a problem, coyotes, wolves, bears, grizzlies, and it's because they really and truly believe this narrative that um, they're going to compete with them. These animals are going to compete with them, and they're going to take away their right to hunt. And so as things stand right now, my answer to your question is, yes, I have a real problem with it. Um, for you know, We've talked in the past, too, that I don't believe there's much subsistence hunting going on. I'm not saying that people don't go out and kill a deer and eat it. I'm just saying that most people really don't need to do that anymore. And it's much more of a sport. And so that, so for me, that's, you know, I don't think we should just kill animals for sport. And two, I just think that it has put us in this position where our conservation model just sucks to be honest with you. I mean, we don't care at all about restoring native systems anymore because it's cheaper just to let the NRA and those guys come in and, just manage the populations like it's a big zoo or something. I think we'll leave it at that point. Attorney Michael Harris, my, my longtime friend, a longtime contributor to Troubadours and Rock on Tours, I'm happy to say. He's the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. You could find him if you Google Friends of Animals. If you want to share some insights, ask him some questions, I'm sure he'd love to, uh, to hear them. Uh, Michael, continue, please, to, to do the great work you're doing, and uh, and I look forward to our next conversation. Well, thank you. And if Trump happens to sign the Cecil Act, I'll come out and endorse him, and that will be the end of his presidency. So, <laughs> sounds like a great strategy. <laughs> All right. Take care, Michael. Thank you, E.W. Bye bye. Like to start off here with a song that I recorded here not long ago. I think it's one of the prettiest ones I've ever recorded. Boys, if you will, a little tune called The Lost Highway. I'm a rolling stone all alone and lost. For a life of sin, I have paid the call. When I pass by, all the people say, there goes another boy down the lost highway. Just a deck of cards and a jug of wine. And a woman's lies makes a life like mine For the day we met, I went astray I started rolling down that lost highway
was just a lad, nearly twenty-two. Neither good nor bad, just a kid like you. And now I'm lost, too late to pray. Lord, I paid the cost on the lost highway. Now, boys, don't start your rambling around on this road of sin. Are your sorrow bound? Take my advice. Are you cursed the day you started rolling down that lost highway? Yes. An article from the September 30th, 2019 edition of the New Yorker magazine, written by Ian Frazier, titled Brave New World Cookout. Late one recent morning, Alan Bigelow set up seven solar thermal cooking devices in the front yard of his house in Nyack, New York. Sunshine was pouring down like slot machine jackpots. One of the seven cookers cost essentially nothing, and consisted of linked cardboard panels covered with aluminum foil, which reflected the sunlight to a central point on which sat a pot of jasmine rice. Another was a metal box with silvery surfaces that unfolded upward to catch the sun and aim it at a pot of chicken and tomato stew. A high-end solar cooker, about $500 retail, which involved a large parabolic dish and a cooking surface like a burner on an electric stove, had already become hot enough to get a pan of stir-fry shrimp and turmeric sauce sizzling. Bigelow is the science director of Solar Cookers International, SCI, a nonprofit that promotes solar cooking around the world. He talks with a slight Texas drawl because that's where his family is from and where he got his PhD in physics, but he grew up all over. His father was in the Foreign Service. Bigelow raises his eyebrows when he smiles, as if he has a wonderful present waiting for you in the next room. Four months ago, he demonstrated solar cookers at a refugee camp in northern Kenya. More recently, he talked to delegates in, at the UN. Mary Frank, the artist, is his friend and fellow solar cooking proselyte. She has been a volunteer at SEI for more than two decades. Frank had come down from her studio in Woodstock and brought the chicken and the shrimp. They were making the solar lunch for themselves and a man from New Jersey. About three billion people around the world cook on open fires, Bigelow said, giving the parabolic cooker a nudge to keep it aligned with the sun. Frank said, and all that smoke is bad for the planet, of course, but the fires are also terrible for the women and girls who have to tend them breathing in the smoke, getting burns and lung ailments, risking being raped or even killed on their increasingly long journeys to find biomass to burn, wood and dung, mainly. She started taking the shrimp out of the pan, and the man from New Jersey quickly ate one. 
Chicken and tomato with rice followed, done perfectly. Cicadas in the trees did their impersonations of various electrical appliances. Hydrania bushes in the yard burst into even more elaborate bloom. And the incoming sunlight, at a rate of a thousand watts per square meter, transformed into culinary heat, seemed to hum. Bigelow opened a map on the patio table. It showed the average yearly sunlight around the globe, with the less sunny places, northern Russia, Seattle, and limp pastel shades of yellow and blue, and the sunniest places, a vigorous sunburn red. Those included most of sub-Saharan Africa and a lot of India. Billions of people live in these parts of the world, and many of them are considered last mile, beyond the last mile of road, he said sweeping his finger across the red. For them, solar cooking can reduce deforestation and soil erosion, and they can also use the cookers to pasteurize water when there's a problem finding a potable supply. One of the seven cookers had been baking a cake whose cozy winter aroma filled the gold-green summer day. Frank served slices with the solar-simmered fruit compote. The scene now shifts to the Bronx. Bigelow is about to give a talk to solar cooking fans in an SCI board member's home. Rose Brazil, originally from Haiti, who started the world's first college-level solar cooking class there, says to the New Jersey man, In Haiti, I even use my solar cooker on the roof of my car. I have a Toyota RAV4, and I put sweet potatoes, squash, plantain, hamburger, nothing that requires water because the bumps would splash it out, into my cooker, and I tie it to the roof. Then I set out from Port-au-Prince to Côte de Fer, a three-hour drive, and by the time I'm about halfway, the food is done. I stop at a picnic table, take the cooker from the roof, and eat my lunch under a tree. Solar cooking is perfect for Haiti because fuel can be hard to find, and many of our hillsides are completely stripped of trees but we have sun in abundance. There are at least 14,000 solar cookers already in Haiti, and we hope that number will grow by thousands and thousands more, Bigelow put in, eyebrows raised, beaming.
Sour Mash. Francis Ford, Ed Wood, Nancy Drew, Drew Barrymore, Lionel Hampton, Hampton Hawes, playing the guitars, Waylon Jennings and old crawfish daddy talking politics in front of the Sour Mash still, and yet most folks tune it all out by swallowing a mind-numbing pill. The United States' way of coping and carousing toward forward progress, a suspect notion of collective will.
there you have it, episode 338 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Michael Harris from Friends of Animals. Also, writer Ian Frazier. And these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Miko, Leif Volebeck, Hank Williams, Stevie Wonder, The Family Daptone, Brentford Marsalis, and of course, Terence Blanchard, too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, let's give it a go, why don't we? and try to enjoy this one.